Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Tampa Bay Buccaneers from the 48-yard line. Second down, 13. Brady Lop, one downfield. Caught ball by Gronkowski. Inside the 20, to the 15-10. Gronkowski to the 5, to the 4-yard line. Holy Bronco, There's the snap. Mahomes running to his right. Look out. He may run. Mahomes. No short the end down. Battle intercepted. Picked off in the end zone. Bucks are going to beat the Chiefs. We're the champions of the world, and we still have a minute 33 to go. Devin White. This is the big nasty. Yeah, big nasty. All fame Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan, baby. This is Mike Allstott, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and you're listening to the Cannon Fire Podcast. Cannon Fire Podcast, brother. You ain't listening, and you're missing out. Woo! And there the cannons go. Fire them. Keep on firing them. Keep on firing them. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new edition of the Cannon Fire Podcast. Back on YouTube today with a brand new episode. I am your host, as always, Rhett Matthew. Joined alongside me, my good buddy and co-host, the Philly Bucks fan himself, Mr. Evan Wanish of BucksNation.com. Joining us today for a very special edition of the Cannon Fire Mailbag, former Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback, ladies and gentlemen, Coach Sean King. Welcome to the podcast. First time guest. We are excited to have you, man. I'm excited to be here. First of all, I love the name Cannon Fire because (laughs) if you've never been to Raymond James, that's the most unique experience ever. The first time the Bucs get in the red zone and that cannon goes to boom, boom. I mean... It's it's a very, very crazy, crazy experience. It's got to be one of the best home field advantages in the NFL. Like, you've heard about, you know, the Raiders. They've got the black hole. Their fans get rowdy. Uh, up in Cleveland, they got the dog pound. But there is nothing like having a full-size pirate ship in your stadium. And, I mean, there's nothing more symbolic than a uh, firing of the cannons after a Tampa Bay touchdown. Evan, before we get this thing rolling, how are you doing today, my man? Happy Cinco de Mayo, folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing quite well. Really excited for this episode today and uh, looking forward to answering a lot of the questions that, that we got in our mailbag. Yeah, should be a good one. Grab your stogie if you're watching with us over on video. Um, Coach, we got a lot of questions for you and, and we're going to open things up. This is, I'm not going to lie, this is a tough conversation. So we kind of kind of get the uh, the elephant in the room out of the way first. We invited people to send in their questions, and we got more than a few questions regarding the NFC Championship game against the Rams, January 23rd, 2000. You already know the question I'm going to ask, so I think what the people really want to know is, you know, after all of these years, what are your thoughts on on everything that took place? Because every Bucks fan knows the story. Bert Emanuel, you threw a dime of a catch. Everybody thought it was a catch. We get ready for the next play. And then all of a sudden, we don't get that next play. Bucks end up in a tough situation, unable to come away with the score. But what are your thoughts on on everything that took place that night? Well, let me respond with a couple of different angles. You know, first of all, the humanistic side. Uh, there are some very, very good football players and excellent men who were on that team. Hardy Nickerson, Donnie Abraham, guys like that who didn't ultimately get to experience us winning a championship. So I feel for those guys because they had kind of built and been the core of that group with Brooks and Sapp and Lynch that turned what had really been a 
franchise that hadn't had a lot of success into one that, you know, was on the cusp and precipice of going to a Super Bowl. So I feel extremely uh, frustrated that they played that type of game and we didn't get a chance to do what we had done the last quarter of the season, which was, you know, we were still growing as an offense. The majority of the money at the time was on the defensive side of the ball. You know, this was before we went in and invested heavily on offense and you had a rookie quarterback. You know, we were trying to fit the pieces together, but we had found a way to win games. The Washington playoff game at home, perfect example. You know, and I truly believe that if that terrible, terrible replay overturn doesn't happen, that we beat the St. Louis Rams. And, you know, from a personal standpoint, I'm so disgusted because some kind of way I got forgotten in history. It's called a Burt Emanuel catch. And when the NFL films did the special on the Burt Emanuel catch, some kind of way they lost my cell phone, they lost my email. I didn't even get invited to participate in, you know, the whole spectacle. So that rubbed me the wrong way. Now to the actual real time. We didn't know they were reviewing the call. We had thrown, I had thrown the ball to Burt. I think we're going to be, I want to say maybe third and five or third and six or something from around the 15 yard line. And I called timeout. And so we went to the sideline. We had already came back to the huddle with two plays. And I'm waiting on the ref to, to blow the whistle, and he's nowhere around. And then I look to the sideline, and Dungey's kind of shaking his head, you know, talking to the ref. And that's the first time that I actually realized that the ref was under the replay booth. And uh, still there was no concern because I didn't think there was anything attached to that catch that anyone could – justify or, or qualify as it being an incompletion. So when they did overturn it, it turned into a mad scramble for us because we had a couple third and medium plays and fourth and short plays already called. And now all of a sudden it was third and I want to say like 20. So it was, it was, it was, it was chaos at the moment. And uh, I think the NFL, they know they blew that call. You know, but I guess we're not alone. I guess there are other teams, you know, the tuck rule with the Raiders and some other situations where I think and feel like teams feel like the, the, the officiating, you know, cost them a berth. So obviously, you know, that offseason uh, after that heartbreaking loss, the, the team acquired Keyshawn Johnson to try and get some offensive skill power in there. Uh, the, the team needed it. I know Warren Sapp tells a story a lot about how he was talking to Keyshawn at the Pro Bowl and stuff and everything, how that came about. So the next season, you would have a chance to play the Rams again, this time in Tampa. And it's week 16. Okay, there's a minute 48 left on the clock. It's second and 10. Packed. You're down 35 to 31. Packed house, by the way. AJ I mean, is packed under you, the lights. Yeah, you talk to a lot of people. Prime time, Monday night football, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. You talk to a lot of people, especially ones who were in that stadium that night. One of the greatest Bucks games of all time. I, I yeah. mean, seriously, just an all-time classic. The entire game is available on YouTube. So, folks, if you have not seen this game, Monday night football, the 2000 season, Go check it out. But Evan, sorry, I just wanted to help set the stage because it really was like, I mean, everybody was amped up to see what this Bucks team was getting ready to do against the Rams team that took them out a year earlier. And even we talk about the Burt play, you know, the 
the tone shift in Tampa Bay Buccaneers history. What's crazy, and a lot of people get hung up on this, man, but if you guys win that NFC Championship game, the the consensus was that you were going to steamroll Tennessee in the Super Bowl. It, it seemed like it was, it, it, you know, and, and obviously if that happens, we're talking about an alternate timeline, but just everything changes. The conversation around Tampa Bay changes. They get their first Super Bowl title a couple of years earlier. Tony Dungy gets that Super Bowl title, and that's a huge deal. So, I mean, sorry to get all caught up on the what ifs, but just to emphasize how much this right. Monday night game meant to every single person in that stadium, Bucks and Rams, it, it was a great game. So we have second and 10, and work done gets the football, and work done gets uh, caught up into some Rams defenders, and he decides the best play is to lateral it back to you. So the question we got in our mailbag was, if you were, can recall anything, what was going through your head at that moment when you saw the ball getting tossed back to you? Well, first of all, let me uh, answer all of the points. Keyshawn was a great acquisition for us. You know, that's why I kind of mentioned that the Bucks organization really hadn't invested on the offensive side of the ball as far as free agency and, you know, high contract, you know, players. But we also changed coordinators. And so I don't know if a lot of people know this, but my first four years in Tampa, I had four different offensive coordinators. So as a rookie, we had Mike Shula. I didn't end up starting until, you know, I think maybe week 10 or 11, you know, when Trent broke his collarbone. And you would think year two, there'd be continuity. And we'd be improving upon our deficiencies, kind of, you know, taking the system to the next level where Les Stuckle came in. And uh, I love Les to death, but Les tried to turn Mike Allstott into an H-back, like a movement tight end. He had Frank Wachek and I think Jackie Harris in Tennessee, and he tried to turn Mike into like Frank Wachek. So we spent the first half of that season really trying to figure out, you know, could the pieces work how Wes wanted them, Les wanted them to. And so... I don't know if a lot of people remember this, but the loser of that game was out of playoff contention. So not only was it a rematch with the Rams and it was at our house, but it was also whoever lost was out of the playoffs. So it was so many things that were of importance in that game. And, you know, we had finally started to hit our stride a little bit. I, I challenge anybody, if you look at our offense in the NFC Championship game and then look at our offense that night, I mean, it's night and day. It was my first full year as a starter. And, you know, I just want to say this. It's very hard as a young quarterback to be starting on a team that's expected to win the Super Bowl. And you're trying to grow and develop and at the same time not make any mistakes. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, the best scenario, but I tried to make the best of it. But I will say, man, I've been to a lot of Buck games before I became a Buck, while I was a Buck, after I retired from the NFL. That is still the craziest atmosphere that I've ever seen in Raymond James. I mean, it was electric. It was a standalone game. It was Monday night. All the eyes in the entire country were focused on Tampa. And contrary to the previous 11-6 offensive debacle, this was a 38-35 shootout. And to your question about the actual play, we had actually ran that play earlier in the game. And I threw it to Ward. They actually called it a lateral, so I didn't get the passing yards. I'm still upset about that. And Ward went up the sideline and scored on a, like, a, it probably was like a 45, 50-yard play. And so Kevin Carter, who now is, uh, I think he coaches at Berkeley Prep now in Tampa, ultimately ended up playing for the Bucks. He read the play. And so when I threw it to Ward this time, instead of rushing the quarterback, he kind of flared out. 
And so Warwick had to change direction. And I don't know why I said this, but I told him, pitch it. You know, not thinking that he was going to actually pitch the ball to me, but I was like, pitch it. And he actually pitched it. And I was like, uh-oh, now what? So I started to go back towards midfield, and that didn't look like a clear path to success. So then I changed direction. And luckily, the person chasing me was Grant Winstrom. And I'm faster than Grant Winstrom, running backwards. So I was able to outrun him on the edge. And I mean, it looked like it might have been designed, but it really was just us competing at a high level, trying to not have a negative yardage play. And it worked out. I'm a coach now. I probably yell at my kids extensively uh, if they did that. But it worked. And it was just part of what was a tremendous football game. Well, speaking of coaches, did uh, did did Dungy say anything to you after that play? A good play. <laughs> <laughs> and, a lot, and, and at the end of the run, I actually got clobbered out of bounds by Roland Williams. I mean, he tried to kill me over there. So we got an extra 15 yards. So. I mean, it all worked in our favor. Ultimately, I was proud of the guys because they, uh, they they had a heck of a game. And I think we were just on the cusp precipice of really getting to showcase, you know, what that group could do. And uh, you fast forward to Green Bay, I mean, hell, we're 14-14, you know, fourth quarter, under 10 seconds left. If we make that field goal, we win the NFC Central, get a bye in the first round of the playoffs, and host – the second round playoff game. You know, unfortunately, we missed the kick. Uh, Green Bay won the toss. Favre drove them down. They kicked the field goal. We're on the road at Philly in the wild card, and we lose, and then they blew it all up. They fired Coach Dungy. They brought in Brad Johnson. So, you know, that season's bittersweet for me. I mean, it's unbelievable that a kid that was born in St. Petersburg, Florida, who was the son of a Baptist minister, used to sneak out of church on Sundays when the Bucks played on the road so that I could watch them play because all the home games were blacked out because that's when the sellout rule was in effect. So to, to ultimately end up playing in the for the team I, I, I adored in a home game or that significance with that kind of support, I mean, it's a heck of a memory, but I wish it would have been under different circumstances. I wish we would have been defending Super Bowl champs in that game, but uh, it is what it is, man. Yeah, 100%. We got one more question about that era in Buccaneers history, and you had mentioned it briefly. You had several offensive coordinators early on in your career in Tampa Bay. Uh, our buddy JC13 submits a question. He says, Les Steckle got fired after one season. At the time, did you feel like if he would have stuck around, the offense would have eventually taken off and gotten better, or did you feel like it was a good change that the team needed at the time? And then when you look back at the offense and the attention that it was given, do you think there were any other factors that, you know, maybe should have gotten a little bit more attention for the Bucks to kind of get over that hump on the offensive side of the ball at the time? Well, I think all we needed then was patience. I mean, I think if they keep Mike Shula, you know, that natural progression in the next, in the second year of us being together, I think we're really good on offense. If they'd have kept that Steckle, you know, the same thing, you know, even, Clyde the following year, you know, I just think the patience, you know, had run, ran really thin. And um, it was unfortunate, you know, the, the time periods, you know, didn't match up, you know, as far as me being a, a, a more experienced quarterback, kind of in sync with, with some of our, our guys that were in their prime at that time. But Keyshawn was a great acquisition. He always talks trash to me, but I tell him, you caught eight touchdown passes that year. That's time for most ever in your career. And, you know, one of the reasons that Les wasn't there was because Keyshawn, you know, felt like he wasn't getting the ball enough because he only 
you know, had 56 receptions. But I think the next year he caught 101 passes but only one touchdown. So I, I used to prod and poke at him all the time. See, you gave up seven touchdowns for 50 catches. <laughs> <laughs> so we always uh, – obviously, as the, the transition here from – the old school to, to the present day. I think a, a nice transition is talking about Clyde Christensen. You mentioned him as the offensive coordinator in Tampa. Now he's back in Tampa as the quarterback's coach. What type of coach is Clyde Christensen, you know, day in and day out? You know, what what is Tom Brady? What are those conversations probably like with, with Christensen? Well, he's just steady. You know, he never gets emotionally hijacked. You know, he's always kind of teaching, mentoring. You know, uh, when you fail, he's the same way as when you succeed. And uh, that's why he's been in the game so long. I mean, in a profession where, I mean, it's, you don't see a lot of longevity because there's so much turnover. I mean, Clyde was considered a veteran coach in 99 when I got there. He's still coaching in 2022, you know. So, I mean, that speaks volumes, you know, about who Clyde is and what he's about. You know, unfortunately for me, when Clyde was OC, I actually was the backup to, to Brad Johnson. But, uh, I mean, Clyde's a heck of a guy, man. I love Clyde Christensen the Ducks. Now, let's take a look at how the Bucks are built today. I mean, Clyde Christensen, obviously a big part of that, his relationship with Tom Brady. Recently retired Bruce Arians, who still has a front office position, looking to make things happen this year. And new head coach Todd Bowles. I mean, what a great situation for Todd Bowles to be in really quickly. Let's talk about the latest Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach. You got Tom Brady, who decided to come back out of retirement, and uh, he recruited some buddies here to play as well. Unfortunately, you lose Big Ali Marpet, Tampa Bay Buccaneer legend on the offensive line. That's all right. They're going to fill that gap with Shaq Mason. And then uh, it seems like they got a stud there in the NFL draft a couple of days ago with Luke Gedeke. He's going to get a shot to uh, compete for that other guard spot. Maybe we could see him starting week one. But you get a couple of receivers back as well. Chris Godwin takes a pretty team-friendly deal, right around $20 million a year over the next three years. You get Russell Gage over the next three years. Shaq Mason, by the way, finishing out the rest of his contract. So you have him this season and the next. Whether this is Tom Brady's last season or not, what do you make of the way that Jason Light, the way that this Bucks team has really just come together over these last couple of seasons and you know, they've produced a couple of the most winning seasons in Buccaneer history. One of them ended in a Super Bowl championship, but it also seems like this team is going to be ready to compete for the next two or three years if Tom Brady does decide to hang it up after this season. So what are your thoughts on where this team stands today? Well, let me address a couple of things on that. First of all, I don't think enough is said nationally of uh, about the Glazier family and Bruce Arians. Because one of the issues that the NFL has is a lack of minority hiring. And when you look at the Glazer family and the Bucks organization, I think they're the only organization to ever have four African-American head coaches. Uh, Tony Dungy, Raheem Morris, Lovey Smith, and now Todd Bowles. I mean, that, that's unbelievable. The Glazer family doesn't get enough credit, you know, for that fact. Also, Bruce Arians having a black defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, assistant head coach, having multiple females on that staff in Tampa, you know, they should be looked as a beacon of success throughout the league and throughout the national platforms, you know, for their ability to, to, to put into action, you know, something that a lot of other teams and organizations talk about, but don't actually practice. You know, um, Jason Light's been outstanding. 
You know, when you look at his track record of drafts, I think O.J. Howard may be the only miss. And who knows what O.J. could have been if he had just stayed healthy, you know, throughout the entire career. So, you know, I think Jason's done a tremendous job. You know, I think the organization has righted itself, you know, for a free agent like Tom Brady to choose Tampa. You know, that says a lot about, you know, the perception of the Bucks organization throughout the league because Tom wasn't going to go anywhere when it was chaos. You know, I think one of the main reasons that he's not a Miami Dolphin now is because they ultimately were in the midst of chaos, you know, with the Brian Flores lawsuit and, and everything going on, you know, down with the Dolphins. So fast forward to now, I think they have to win it this year. You know, I think the one thing you have to be concerned about is their best players are probably, if they're not out of their prime, on the last leg of their prime. You know, uh, Tom was phenomenal. I never thought he was going to walk away after having the season that he had last year. So I'm glad that uh, I ultimately ended up being right, and he's a buck. But Mike Evans, I mean, he's still an elite receiver, but he's not in his prime. Devontae David, still a really good linebacker, not in his prime. You know, you look at that defensive line, I don't, it doesn't look like they're going to bring back JPP or Indomitian Sue. So now you just have Shaq Barrett there who, you know, he's still, he's not in his, like these are still really good players, but they're not like on the front end of being elite the next five years. You know, so I think it's important that, that Tampa gets it done this year, especially when you look at the NFC, you know, not looking to be as strong as it has been, you know, in recent years. I do think a guy like Vita Vea on that Bucks defensive line, though, he is a name that we can talk about as someone who is about to enter some of his most productive seasons, barring he's able to stay healthy. Buccaneers just locked him up to a long-term deal. But you had briefly mentioned the Tom Brady to Miami stuff, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that because a lot of people seem quick to kind of dismiss those reports. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm kind of one of them. I feel like there is some truth to it. Obviously, I don't know that much because – when reports like that come out, a lot of people say, oh, it's a slow time of year. It's rumor season, right? Everybody's looking for a reason to maybe write a story about Tom Brady because a name like that is going to get clicks any time of year. But at the same time, it feels like whenever rumors like that come out, there is a sense of, you know, there's a certain level of something that's true, like behind closed doors. But do you have, you know, any idea or any input on the on the Brady to Miami stuff, just how true that really was? The irony of me lighting my cigars, where there's smoke, there's fire, fellas. Yeah, there you go. And it's too many pieces that made sense. You know, of course, Tom Brady looks like he has aspirations of ownership. Uh, Stephen Ross is, if not the largest uh, supporter of Michigan Athletics, he's one of the top three. Uh, Sean Payton and Tom Brady have a tremendous relationship. And if it could have happened, I think it would have. And uh, if the Brian Flores thing doesn't happen, I think there would have been a lot of energy from those three men to kind of get to Miami with some agreed upon, let's try and win a Super Bowl. And maybe Peyton became the GM and Brady became minority owner. But I think there was a succession plan in place in Miami. So I do think that story is legitimate. It's hard, hard to make up all of those pieces that actually make sense and be fabricating the entire thing. And is this is this a situation where Brady is a minority owner and also an active quarterback on the team, or is this maybe a post retirement thing that he was he was looking into? 
I think it was a post-retirement thing, almost like a balloon package a big corporation gives you. You know, when uh, they got a, a, a young buck, they want to take your place, but they appreciate everything that you've done. And, uh, I mean, it's been tremendous for uh, for Stephen Ross. I mean, the Dolphins are in the mecca of a celebrity, you know, feel Miami. So why not have a celebrity as a minority owner trying to attract, you know, a larger, more consistent fan base, you know, utilizing that. The Florida Marlins did it with Derek Jeter. So the blueprint was there. So I definitely think that that's the direction that the Dolphins would have loved, you know, for these last three, four months to, to head. So, you know, I do like that you brought up, uh, because I don't think it's talked about enough, the job that Jason Light has done. And a lot of people say, well, uh, well, Tom Brady, you know, when you sign Tom Brady, that's easy to win. Well, you have to have a roster that Tom Brady, you know, sees that he can win with. And that's what they had at the time. Um, what was your, and I, th- I feel like we have to ask almost every guest that comes on the show about this. What was your initial reaction when Tom Brady joined the Buccaneers? I wasn't surprised because there was a trust, a trust quotient that existed between him and Jason because of their time together in New England. Mm. You know, so uh, Bruce Arians also is known as a player's coach. He's frank, he's honest, but he's a player's coach. You know, um, and I think it attracted Brady, you know, getting to a warm weather client, climate, you know, being able to kind of facilitate, you know, Gromkowski coming and, and some different things like that. So it had to make a lot of sense. You know, at the time, the Bucks talented on defense. You know, Devin White was emerging as a superstar. You know, this is three years ago. So Levante David was three years younger, JPP, Shaq Barrett. I mean, the pieces were there. So, uh, Give the organization credit, you know, also for, you know, becoming, you know, an organization that uh, could attract a free agent like that. Because Brady wasn't going anywhere where it was chaotic. And the Bucks mm-hmm. had been chaotic. You know, if you look at the Lovey Smith, Dirk Cutter, you know, uh, Greg Schiano eras, I, I mean, there's a lot more stability that existed, you know, this time around. And Jason Light gets a lot of credit for that. Yeah, so obviously you brought up – this is the last question I personally have. You brought up Bruce Arians being a player's coach, but being honest. You had, I, I think, you know, a similar situation where Tony Dungy was a player's coach, but when John Gruden comes in, they're two different animals, right? They're, they're, they are two completely different animals. What was the biggest difference that you could tell from when it was Tony's team and then when it was Gruden's team? What was the biggest difference that you could tell? Nobody liked the head coach. Okay. <laughs> was it was it yeah. that rough? Like that rough of a oh, reaction? Yeah. Do people forget that he sent Keyshawn Johnson home midseason? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, when does that happen in the NFL? And you know, I'll be honest, he gets a lot of credit because, you know, hey, we won a Super Bowl with him there. But when you look at it, and this is why I always bring up the allocation of resources. At the time, the entire defense was taken care of. And the majority of those guys are on the back end of those deals. So they were cap friendly. And we brought in Michael Pittman and Thomas Jones and Ricky Dudley and Joe Dravicious and Keenan McCardell. And so there was a whole lot of emphasis put on adding, you know, established, you know, guys on offense. And hey, listen, if we'd have done that beforehand, you know, I think we'd have found the same success. I also think if, and this is probably the only misstep I think the Glazer family has had, if they don't get impatient with Tony Dungy, I truly believe Tampa wins three, four Super Bowls. That's that's 
that's the general consensus with a lot of people. I, I kind of wanted to allude to that a little earlier when I brought up, you know, the what if scenario, the NFC championship game against the Rams. You guys win that game. You go to the Super Bowl. If you play Tennessee, you absolutely steamroll Tennessee. That's Tony Dungy's team. The offense, or I'm sorry, the defense is playing the best ball that they had. 1999, Warren Sapp, Defensive Player of the Year, right? I mean, these guys are in their prime. And then you look at what that team was capable of from there. You fill in the holes that you had mentioned on offense, but with the defense already being what it was and playing their best football, because a lot of people will tell you that that 1999 Bucks defense was better than the 02 Bucks defense. Even though they were able to get the job done, they had one of the best Super Bowl performances in history. A lot of people still look at that 99 defense being as good as they were, but like, yeah, that definitely opens the door to to Tony Dungy getting an opportunity to keep that team winning, get a couple of more years as the head coach in Tampa Bay, and maybe a couple more Super Bowl titles. You know, it, it really is kind of a wild thought when you think about it. I, I feel but, like if, if if they win that game, even if they don't win the Super Bowl, I think Dungy would stay, and who and who knows what would happen. You know, um, I feel like that game was 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 pivotal, and then obviously, you know, the Bucks go to Philly, and they and they couldn't get the job done in the next few seasons. But yeah, I mean, I I've you know I sort of get that sense too, especially when Dungy you know won the Super Bowl with the Colts. Um, you know, like you could tell this was a Super Bowl winning coach. It's just he needed time to do it. And unfortunately, he wasn't given enough time. And yes, John Gruden put the finishing touches on it, but it did feel like that team was right there anyway. Um, well, so, let, let me let me let me throw this at you guys. Absolutely. If they don't fire Dungey, the Bucks are probably the modern day Pittsburgh Steelers. OK, All right, that, that, that's that is, you know, that that, that is bold. Because people forget that on Dungy's staff, Herman Edwards became the head coach of the Jets. Lovey Smith went to the Chicago Bears. Rob Marinelli became the head coach of the Detroit Lions. People forget that Mike Tomlin mm -hmm. replaced Herm Edwards. Yeah. So if they don't get rid of Dungy, more than likely Tony stays, grooms Tomlin. Tony maybe retires sometime around 17, 16. Tomlin takes over. You know, and now becomes one of those organizations that's consistent, you know, and patient and does it the right way. So uh, who knows? I mean, you can't ever change the past, but I mean, it would have probably saved Buck Nation from a whole lot of down years. Yeah. I mean, when you look at hypothetical situations, hindsight, of course, is always twenty twenty. But when you talk about this Tampa Bay Buccaneers franchise in particular, it is insane just how much a single non-catch changed the history of a franchise. We, we talk about what if, and, uh, you know, a really fun rabbit hole to go down is what could have happened if Tony Dungy got a few more chances to make a run at it in Tampa Bay. But before we wrap things up, Coach, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the 2022 slate of opponent for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. With Tom Brady back under the helm, the expectation remains the same. A another Super Bowl is what you're going to want. Tom's going to want ring number eight to put on that finger. The Buccaneers would love nothing more than a third franchise Super Bowl title. Their second in three years would be pretty damn impressive as well. But let's look at the regular season. There's going to be a lot of classic games this year. But this is a Bucs team that won a franchise high 13 games just a season ago. I don't know if they're going to be winning quite 13 games this year, but you look at what's on the schedule. They've got the LA Rams, the Cincinnati Bengals, Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers back. We just found out they're going to be playing the Seahawks in Germany. 
You got a rematch inside Raymond James Stadium of Super Bowl 55. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs are coming to town. Lamar Jackson and the Ravens, the Arizona Cardinals, the Dallas Cowboys, Pittsburgh Steelers on the road. Always a tough place to play. You get it. Plus all the division games on top. So what do you make? Is this Bucks team up for the challenge? Are we going to get some more classics this season? Well, I have a uh, nightly talk show that I host here in Las Vegas on the VSIN network, V-S-I-N. You guys can download the app. It's also uh, on YouTube television, and it's on Fubo. And we're from 7 to 10 Pacific time, Monday through Friday. It's called The Nightcap. Myself and my co-host, Tim Murray. And so I'm a content creator. I have three hours a night that we have to fill content. So I talk scheduling, but I also put this context on it. There's so much parity in the National Football League. You never really know from a scheduling standpoint what's a tough game and what's not. You think we lost to a Saints team twice last year that Jameis Winston only played, what, the first quarter of the Mm -hmm. first game? And so if you would have looked at that before the season and said, well, Jameis is getting hurt or Jameis is not there and they're going to play with, you know, those bums that they got playing quarterback and the Bucs are going to lose twice, you would have pelted that in as two wins. You know, if you look at the Washington Commanders, Ryan Fitzpatrick goes down, they're battling injuries, no Chase Young. You you count that as a win on the road. So, I mean, it's just so difficult to predict year to year in the NFL strength of schedule, just in my opinion, because there's so much parity. Is that always how how you looked at it whenever you you got the schedule to start the year? Oh, yeah. Only thing we looked at, guys, are what games were on the road in December. That's the only thing we cared about. Okay, where are we? Where are we going? We're going to get off the plane and it's going to be freezing. <laughs> All right, coaches, we wrap things up. One final question for you. I know it's early and, uh, you know, it's kind of an odd time of year to throw out record predictions, but if you had to ballpark something for the Buccaneers this season, what would you say in the realm of record predictions for the 17 game season? Well, if they remain healthy and one of the offensive linemen that they can draft it is ready to be a full time starter or at least a 50-plus snap-a-game guy and be adequate, then then I think they're a double-digit win team. But if you think back to the playoff loss against the Rams, you know, when there was no Tristan Wirfs and Donovan Smith played like, you know, it was his first start in the National Football League, I mean, Brady was under major duress. And so I think the, the season kind of revolves around the offensive line's ability. I know we added Shaq Mason. That was a good addition. But if that offensive line is – just slightly above average, they're a double-digit win team. You know, you guys mentioned Vita Vea, you know, not to steal Charles Barkley's analogy, but now we're going to see, can he actually drive the bus? You know, it's one thing when Indomitian Sue is next to you and JPP's on the edge, you know, but now that you're the guy getting the double teams and you're the focal point, you know, of a lot of the interior, you know, uh, tag teams, you know, can you still produce, you know? So it's going to be fascinating to watch. I thought Logan Hall, you know, was a great addition. He's a guy that played inside and outside, you know, at at, um, at Houston. You know, the only thing with the Logan Hall, I'm a big Christian Watson fan. And I was so hoping that the Bucks took Christian Watson, you know, just because even though, you know, Godwin re-signed, he's still coming off of the ACL. So, you know, he already was not a blazer per se before the injury. So, I mean, does that limit, you know, his explosiveness even more? You know, as I said, Michael Evans has been a, a model of consistency, but at some point he loses a step so it'd have been nice to get a a nice young explosive I do like the gauge pickup a lot 
but it would have been sweet to have an explosive, you know, weapon like Watson, 6'4", you know, Tyreek Hill fast, you know, they can, you know, jump and make contested catches. But, you know, I'm bullish on the Bucks. I think they're going to be good this year. I think it helps that it looks like the NFC South is kind of in a rebuild in a lot of ways. So uh, those are, are, what, six games right there. You know, we're not going to, you know, face a team that has more talent than us. You know, I think the Saints losing Marcus Williams is big because that defense won't be as good. You know, of course, Carolina, who who the hell knows what's going on, you know, down in Charlotte. And, and Atlanta is just a, a dumpster fire. Maybe Calvin Ridley uh, will come to some Bucks games. He has some free time. <laughs> You know, a lot of free time. Uh, was there one real quick? Was there ever a team like like the Saints when your career that you just could never seem to beat? For us, it was Philly. Yeah. Until we beat them, you know that was the squad. I tell you, man, my rookie year, not my rookie year, my second year. I swear they were playing with thirteen people. <laughs> uh, man, look, I I think I went to the sideline one time. I say, Coach, they cheating. He said, What you mean? I said, They got to have thirteen guys out there. <laughs> I'm I'm sure it must have felt even even better than you know in 2002 than the NFC title game. I'm sure. Well, this is where you always get the Philly fans when they talk smack. Listen, we closed down one stadium, opened up, we opened up another one <laughs> with the Bucks kicking butt, and just to show you the disrespect that the National Football League has shown the Tampa Bay organization during that period, we were defending Super Bowl champions and open the following season on the road at mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe it's the only the second time that a defending Super Bowl champion has had to open up the uh, the season on the road. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, Coach Sean King, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with us this week. Check out his show, The Nightcap, on VSIN Network, and uh, follow him on Twitter at RealSeanKing. Where else can people find your content, Coach? Uh, I'm on Instagram at Coach Sean King. Uh, and again, the nightcap is on YouTube TV, if you guys have that. And it's on Fubo. It's like a television show. It's also simulcast, you know, uh, across the you know, United States of America. If you download the VSIN app, you can actually listen for free. Or if you uh, get the membership, then you can watch this pretty face as well. I will tell you this. Some of the winners I've given out on the show, I gave out St. Peter's Moneyline versus Purdue in the NCAA tournament. Uh, I'm uh, Puckstradamus on the show. See, I just dabble in football. I'm really a hockey fan. So I'm hitting about 68% right now in hockey. So, I mean, we're having a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous six months. So I don't know if you guys wager, but if you like to bet a little bit, man, or, you know, if you want to play the Kentucky Derby this week, I like the six-horse Messier and the 15-horse White Abario. Okay. Can we get, uh, can we, you know, based on the, uh, the Stanley Cup odds, who, 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 do you, who do you like to take home the cup? Well, I have Lightning to win this series. I have Lightning to win the conference and Lightning to hoist Lord Stanley's trophy for the third year in succession. Hopefully, I get the Lightning in game two in Toronto and not the Lightning in game one as we move forward. <laughs> I like it. I'm a little bit biased, but uh, playoff hockey is the best time of year, folks. Must be nice to it, experience that. Oh, yeah, man. If you're into the wagering, go check it out. By the way, this podcast is brought to you by betonline.ag, so make sure you jump on that. Plenty of action around the world of sports right now. Big thank you again to Coach Sean King for jumping on the pod with us this week. We truly do appreciate you, and thank you 
ladies and gentlemen, for checking out this episode of the Cannon Fire Podcast. Check out the show on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All of those are Cannon Fire Podcast. Best place to go for updates on the show and, of course, Buccaneer news as it happens. Speaking of Bucks news as it happens, you can follow my co-host Evan on Instagram at Bucks underscore daily, the number one Buccaneers fan page on Instagram. You can also find him on Twitter at EvanNFL and check out his written work at BucksNation.com. Last but not least, you can check out myself, Instagram and Twitter at Redicus, R-H-E-T-T-A-K-U-S. If you follow me, I will follow you back. I am your host, Rhett Matthew, signing off for my co-host, Evan Wanish, and our special guest, Sean King. We'll talk to you in the next one. Until then, and as always, go box. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.